Hi, my name is Jack Lawrence, and welcome to episode 6 of my podcast. My guest today is Alice O'Keefe. Alice is a PhD student at the University of Wollongong in Australia, where she is studying the usage of nanoparticles for treating brain tumours. And yes, that turns out to be just as cool as it sounds. Alice also makes videos on TikTok about physics, most recently around the interpretations of quantum mechanics. The conversation you're about to hear was incredibly fun to record. We start off talking a bit about her research, and then shift into talking about science and philosophy more broadly. We ask questions such as, what qualities make for a good scientist and teacher? What are the interpretations of quantum mechanics, and why are they needed? And we even touch on ideas in Buddhism and Taoism, and how they relate to science. Like I said, this episode was incredibly fun. We could have easily spoken for several more hours, but we kept it at an acceptable length. So without further ado, here is Alice O'Keefe. Take two stone tablets, carved. Problems are soluble. Problems are inevitable. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. And that simple statement is the key to science. Why did you do this? Um, That's the thousand uh, why in this morning. There is no why. There's no why. There's no why. Alice O'Keefe, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. No, so I'm really excited to speak to you. I know we've sort of chatted once before, and I just want to say right off the gate, your videos on TikTok are amazing. Your explanations are so clear and succinct. I'm a huge fan. And thank you. Yeah, this was just an elaborate excuse, really, just to nerd out with you about quantum physics and lots of other things. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. So straight into it, what is medical physics? Because I know that's primarily where you work, So, and I don't think it's necessarily obvious what that entails. So please just educate me. Right. So I'm doing my PhD in medical physics um, at uni. So uh, medical physics in general is really mostly to do with research behind cancer treatments that use radiation therapy. That's not everything in medical physics. You can do stuff like other treatments or MRI scans, CT scans, but like the physics behind um, treatments, especially cancer treatments, is kind of like the field of medical physics mostly. That's amazing. And you do something with nanoparticles being injected into brain tumors, is what you told me? (laughs) Sounds amazing. Please elaborate. (laughs) Yeah. So um, what we're doing is, well, I should say my whole research team is working on nanotherapy um, in different ways. So in my research team, we're making nanoparticles and we're injecting them into brain tumors so that we can provide a more targeted or like more precise therapy so you don't have to damage other parts of the brain in the process of you know getting rid of the tumor. So what um, my thesis is on essentially is basically taking these little nanoparticles that I've been making and um, fabricating them so that they're like kind of like little bar magnets. Imagine little specks of, um, they almost look like dirt, but like just little specks that are individual tiny bar magnets. And when you inject them into a brain, you can put the patient inside a magnetic field. And then the magnetic field itself isn't going to do any damage to the patient. It's just going to move these little bar magnet sort of nanoparticles in the one area that we want. And then that'll allow us to uh, have a more like uh, have a thermal dose delivered to a very precise area. So they move around kind of like a compass needle pointing north and that heat kills the tumor. But you can also use them for other stuff as well. Yeah, like a radiation booster. That sounds amazing. That sounds straight out of like, a science fiction TV show. Like we've got to inject the nanoparticles into the brain tumor to get rid of it. But like that's actually real. That's insane. So you, yeah. so you're specifically working on creating those nanoparticles, or is it everything we're also researching, injecting it to tissue, or like I, I suppose you describe the sort of broad remit of the project. There, are you end to end on that, or, or what part do you sort of specialize in? 
So I'm in the second year of my PhD, um, mm -hmm. and I'm at the point where I have made a few uh, test batches of nanoparticles, and I'm testing them with like cells and stuff. But I focus mainly on creating and um, characterizing, like doing the materials analysis sort of stuff of these nanoparticles. So I'm kind of doing a lot of that uh, physical side, but it turns out that that ends up being a lot of biology work as well. So what I do is I put the nanoparticles inside um, cells in like a flask. And a lot of my research is just spent doing like cell tests. In my particular research field, we're using these nanoparticles to heat up and kill the cancer cells or make the cancer cells more susceptible to like chemo drugs or radiation treatments as well. Um, in my research team, we're actually using the nanoparticles. They're just, they're just taking nanoparticles from like other companies and they're testing them for like specific stuff with radiation treatment as opposed to like a heat treatment, which is what I'm doing. So that's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, okay. So many questions. So to begin with, that sounds really cross disciplinary. Uh, obviously you need a wide variety of knowledge from a wide variety of fields. So, I mean, to begin with, yeah. How do you even go about beginning to research that creating nanoparticles? I didn't take that course in undergrad. So how do you, how do you, how do you get to that? Okay, this is, this is a great question because um, my sister, who did a completely different degree at a completely different university, um, which was biomedical engineering, uh -huh. um, she ended up doing some very similar stuff. So biomedical engineers can work on this sort of stuff. Personally, I didn't do medical physics or biomedical engineering. Right. I actually did straight physics. So my university is very... Um, uh, it's one of the best unis for radiation physics. We've got Which like university a really are you at? I don't think you mentioned it on this uh, podcast yet. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. I'm at the University of Wollongong. Right. Um, so that's like just uh, an hour south of Sydney mm -hmm. um, in Australia, obviously. So uh, in my research team, um, everyone has been doing or everyone's done like an undergraduate degree in medical physics. So they spent their honours years learning about how radiation um, is spread through the body or like dosimetry and things like that. Um, I didn't actually do that. Um, I did, uh, I spent my honors year doing solid state physics and quantum physics and electromag instead yeah, the good of stuff. Yeah, yeah, the fun stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So what I've, yeah, what I've done is I've taken that, um, sort of, uh, uh, the quantum and the solid state and I've brought it into the field of medical physics, um, where, People are mostly dealing with radiation, as I said, and I'm more looking at like the magnetic properties of materials, like, you know, solid state physics is kind of um, uh, magnets and superconductors and things like that. So I've taken this knowledge from, um, I guess, plain physics and I've applied it to medical physics where I think some people in my research team just have like a different background. So I'm, it's like a fresh perspective, I guess, a mm. little bit. So yeah, a bit interdisciplinary. Yeah, a bit of chemistry, a bit of bio. It's all of them. That's insanely cool. Uh, and it must be really exciting <laughs> to work on a research program which uh, has sort of talent from people from all sorts of different fields to study. Like you must be learning a lot as well from your colleagues, I imagine, and they're learning a lot from you. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm learning so much, especially because so I learned what the cell cycle was like in the second year of my master's. I didn't do any biology. Now I'm dissecting rat brains. <laughs> so like, it's a bit of a jump. I have no formal education in biology. It's probably worth then asking, like, you, know, you said you did straight physics. So what was your background before? So how did you, how did you get to this point prior to that? Uh, you know, did you, because I know it, as far as I can recall, maybe it's changed, but the Australian system is quite different from the UK system in that like you have some broad level exams, which everyone has to take. And there's like some 
broad ranking. I, actually, my knowledge is extremely obscure now that I try to speak about it. So could you tell us how it works? Um, okay, so uh, you guys have your A-levels, I think, yeah, which is yeah. our, you know, year 12, our high school certificate, HSC. That's it, HSC, um, And yeah. then, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, different states have different ones, but our, like, A-levels equivalent gets us into uni. We'll do um, just, you know, coursework like everyone else does. But I think in Australia what's different is you can go straight from honours to um, a PhD. Mm. But I'm pretty sure in England you can't do that. Depends. My mate managed it. And by honours you mean sort of undergrad, presumably. Like, you don't need to do a master's or a fourth year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It varies. So most, at least in physics, most PhD programs require you to have done a master's. Um, my mate actually the one place or one of the few places that didn't require that was Oxford and my friend um, he did his three-year undergrad at Cambridge worked for a year at ESA uh, and then leveraged that to go and do a PhD straight at Oxford so that's how he circumvented it but uh, yeah for the most part they they won that fourth year okay yeah interesting because like um, we just do some undergrad research project and then once you get a feel for it you can jump straight into a PhD I think um, so my undergrad was in a different field, or, well, a different type of physics to the rest of my research team. Um, so in my undergrad, you know, we all pretty much did the same stuff. And then in honours, I just didn't learn all of the medical physics stuff. Um, but I think that's that's really good. That's great. So I saw what was happening in medical physics and I'm like, I'm going to bring my non-medical physics stuff into this field where everyone else is learning, you know, um, dosimetry and radiation. So um, I think like it's important to have a fresh perspective a lot of the time like my supervisor he definitely did like a lot of solid state physics um in you know for his uh research to start with so he and i have been working on something that's a little bit different which i think is a good to yeah as i said bring a fresh perspective into different cancer treatments so yeah yeah i'm bringing a, a lot of magnetism and electron spin stuff in yeah that's uh, so i suppose in terms of uh, the research of these sort of new medical treatments, what's the typical sort of timescale? Because I'm sure someone will be listening to this and going, you know, when can I get nanoparticles injected into me? Um, is there like any sort of precedent set or does it really vary? Like I, I would like to have thought that there was some testing done before using radiation as a cancer treatment. Um, so is there, a, yeah, what's the precedent set? So that's a great question. Um, so basically it takes like, I don't know, eight to 10 years to go from the very start of um, an idea to clinical trials, essentially. So um, in my research team, we do a lot of stuff with, as I said, lab rats um, and brain cancers with lab rats. So we'll go from um, characterizing the materials and cell tests first. So most of my research, because I'm making these particles from scratch, most of my research is in like the, the the characterization once you've done that you can add them to cells in a petri dish see how that goes do a bunch of tests that way which is where i'm up to and then after that we'll do some rat tests which are coming up soon and we'll do um way way down the track after we've done a bunch of safety stuff so in about eight years is when you start to possibly like implement these sorts of treatments so probably 10 ish years would be more more reasonable so 
seems a bit far away, but yeah. I was going to say, if anything, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a short time frame. If it's going to be sort of a long-term treatment, which clearly, as you've described, it might have many different applications. Uh, you'd want at least yeah. you know, some rudimentary testing. Uh, we can not get into yeah. the detail around people complaining that things haven't <laughs> been tested for long enough. So I think, you know, 10 years to make sure. Nanoparticles, I just, I can see that easily going wrong. You know, I don't know. It's sort of one of those things where, yeah, we've seen enough sci-fi films where, oh, God, nanoparticles are the cause of whatever demise. So yeah, no, <laughs> that comforts me. I don't know. I think- I, <laughs> I think like lots of the issue or lots of the reason why it takes heaps of time, especially for um, the work in my thesis is, have you, are you familiar with the square cube rule? I'm not. No, no, no. This is a, this is a new term for me. Um, so if I take like a person and scale them up to like the size of a building or a bug up to the size of a person or something like that, um, they're not going to Oh, sorry, the square because... cube rule. I thought you said the square, yeah. like, 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 it was like a square cubicle. That's how I heard it. I was like, I've not heard. What's the square cube? I don't know. The square cube rule. Yeah. Th- sorry. I was just like, man, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, things don't scale linear. <laughs> yeah. I, I got you. So, yeah. but please explain it because people might not know. So, yeah. 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 Of course. Um, so, basically, if you change the, sc- the scale or the, the size of something, um, its volume um, will change at a different rate to its surface area. So with nanomaterials, not just like bugs and people, that volume to surface area ratio like that changes. That's that rule, like um, that issue still applies for materials as well. So if we have like a different volume to surface area ratio for nanomaterials, then they end up actually being much more difficult to control or at least um it's hard to predict what you're going to measure because so many small changes to the surface area to volume like completely changes the effects of like the crystals or the crystal structure which is what's um making up these nanoparticles so yeah it's kind of like really finicky um but yeah it's a lot of um a lot of electron microscopy and a lot of uh, magnetic tests and things like that. But yeah, so the, the, the research is based on the fact that nanomaterials act differently. So yeah, very finicky. <laughs> I mean, it sounds amazing. I mean, yeah, everything from, you know, dissecting rat, rat brains to using electron microscopes, that's a, that's a really cool PhD. Uh, was physics <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, I, just yeah I mean gotta say like you know uh, very envious um was physics like a a full-on conclusion were you always going to study physics or was there any uh, did you have any other interests that you have now neglected so <laughs> um yeah so I love doing physics I have known that I've loved physics for like a really long time um but I think I what I've loved just as long is talking about science or getting people enthusiastic about science. Hmm. Um, so in my PhD research, I do lots of different types of science. And if I'm lucky, uh, I'll be continuing academia after I finish my PhD, but I don't just want to stay in research. I want to get really involved in the public perception of science and um, working as a science communicator as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I hope you do. Like I said, I, I saw, um, I think the first TikTok of yours I saw was one of the quantum interpretation ones you had. No, it was um, your explanation of the uncertainty principle. And it was just so oh, crystal yeah. clear. 
and I just immediately watched it thinking, this is so much better than any other video I've made, and this person needs more. Like, truly, I watched it, I was like, why do I even bother? I, I was just like, I'm out. This, no. is, this is being done. This is good. All right. No, it was good. It was one of those things that was like, ah, this is how you're meant to do it. This Take notes. Take notes. So, um, yeah. That, oh, that's, that's really Thank exciting. you. No, truly. I, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, that, that's genuine, that was my genuine response of just like a, a bit of awe and just sort of like, you know, just admiration. So it was good. Um, so, yeah. Thank so, you. more research and uh, science communication. That sounds um, extremely exciting. So, yeah, yeah. I think um with like the with the TikTok videos. So um I make TikTok videos just just uh for not not for anything too seriously. I don't even do that many videos, but um it's more like practice for science communication. Um and I think like this uncertain principle question uh, video that you were talking about and a few other ones. Um. I've just been trying to convey like bite-sized information, um, you know, in short form content like TikTok, where lots of people watching your videos have never seen other videos before. It's not like a YouTube playlist or even just like a long form video. People might watch like whatever video um, with absolutely no context um, for why you're trying to communicate that point in the first place. Um, So like if I can keep the ideas contained enough, um, then still people are going to get something out of my explanations. But I think like that's a bit of a struggle as well with <clears throat> especially just quantum mechanics, which is <laughs> just the, the hardest topic to pick to communicate over TikTok. Yeah. I mean, you know that very well as well. But um, yeah, like these short form videos have been really challenging, but really fun to to just give like valuable information in bite sized pieces. Yeah. Yeah, c- completely agree. I, I remember when like, when I started videos, max length was a minute. And when it was suddenly went up to three minutes in length, I was like, I can do so much more with this. It was like, oh, this is basically an essay now. This is basically a TV program. Do you have any idea how much yeah. I can do with three minutes? And so, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, uh, yeah, if we ever get the opportunity to do something five or nay, 10 or 20 minutes in length, there's <gasps> a lot of information density you can do. The, lu- the luxury, right? The attention. Could you story. imagine? Oh, no, I don't even want to. I don't even want to think about it, truly. <laughs> Um, it's too much for my uh, TikTok brain to handle. Um, so, um, speaking about your TikToks, I, I noticed you've been doing a series recently on interpretations of quantum mechanics. Now, um, uh, I'm sure lots of listeners will sort of vaguely know what uh, quantum mechanics is or quantum physics, uh, but they may not necessarily know what an interpretation is or why one might be needed. So um, would you mind answering those questions for me? <laughs> okay. Right. In 25 words or less. Uh, take your time. Take your time. We got yeah. all day. This, this is thankfully a long for, uh, format. So, um, you know, obviously I have some opinions I'm about this, but I want to know yours. So. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's refreshing. Um, yeah, so I think uh, on some of my TikTok videos, I just, I was making a few random, almost like trivia style videos for a while. And I, that was when I first um, started with TikTok. And then I would see lots of videos just like on the recommended page of people talking about like quantum mysticism and, you know, you- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to sip my tea and just, yeah, no, please go on. Holy. <laughs> so um, when I'd see people um, making videos saying like uh, you collapse the wave fun- or you, you make reality um, by your observation and all of this, like, genuinely um malicious even if it's not intentionally malicious sort of like misinformation that's being spread and i was like okay look 
I'm just going to do a couple of videos explaining a bit and then some people, and then it's, I was sort of gauging for a while how much people actually already knew about quantum mechanics. Like, um, the, I think it's called like the science capital of your audience, which is like how much exposure and how much experience they have. Maybe with you need to write that down. That's the kind of thing I should know. Science capital. That's, thank you. Science this is capital. like, this is like pro tips um, right here. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I can't remember who, um, came up with it, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so when people, um, like people can be really easily misinformed and I just wanted to make a few videos being like, no, this is actually what the issue is with quantum mechanics and no, we're pretty sure that like your observation doesn't collapse the wave function, things like that. Um, but yeah, so I've made a few videos about the issues with quantum mechanics and why it seems, I guess, uh, it seems like a mystery or it seems really counterintuitive, which it is, mm. but it's not entirely mysterious. There is a lot of stuff that we do know about quantum mechanics. And I think um, we can deliver bite-sized information about that um, up to a point. So I think in one of my videos, I was like, well, here's sort of, now we don't know. We don't really know what the implications are of um this experiment or whatever, and it kind of goes into philosophy. So then people are like, oh, can we hear more about the interpretations of quantum mechanics? So I was, I've made a few videos making like a tier list, like S tier, mm -hmm. A, B, C tier of um, different interpretations, basically saying like, th these are um, com like competing hypotheses about what could potentially be behind the mysteries of quantum mechanics. But don't get let that confuse you into thinking that quantum mechanics is entirely mysterious because I think people can understand it. They just have been told that they can't. And I just want to, I want to change that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, and uh, I love the videos. Um, so for people listening who, who may not necessarily, so just a very quick primer, please, Alice, if I say anything wrong here, if you have a better explanation, which I'm sure you will, um, please just overwrite no. mine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, quantum physics in a nutshell, what, what we're doing is we're talking about, um, the physics of, you know, essentially, um, you know, the particles that make up the world. So often there'll be things around like protons or electrons or atoms or quarks. Uh, and, um, uh, sort of one of the premises of quantum physics or one of its conclusions, I suppose, is that uh, at the base level of reality, there's a degree of uncertainty. So ultimately, it's the statistical theory uh, of the universe. And when we're referring to the wave function, the wave function is basically just a piece of maths, which uh, you write uh, and you come up with in a given situation. And so that might be uh, an electron in uh, essentially a box or, or a trap of some kind uh, being held there by a field. Uh, and it will tell you, uh, or it, you using the wave function, it'll tell you essentially um, how the probabilities of where that electron might be or what its quantities might be um, over time. And uh, the weird thing about quantum physics, at least initially, and the sort of the famous quote from Einstein of um, him claiming God does not play dice, is that this is a st statistical theory. It can tell us very accurately, uh, better than any other theory, what might happen, the ratios of what will happen, but it can't tell us definitely what will happen in every single experimental setup. And so, um, and so a lot of the mystery around uh, quantum mechanics, at least initially, was that every other theory of the universe we had was deterministic. So it's like, if you have this amount of energy and you give it to this amount of water, it will heat up by precisely this amount every single time. This is how the universe works. Uh, and quantum physics was the first one to say, this is not us lacking in information. The universe fundamentally works like this, where even if you have all the information you can, and that is the wave function, uh, you still don't know what will happen. And hence, at least as I understand it, an interpretation of quantum mechanics is essentially uh, looking for a reason to either explain 
um, why that's the case, why reality at its fundamental uh, level is statistical or probabilistic in nature, or perhaps why that might not be the case, why it might actually be deterministic, uh, and uh, you know what's the missing ingredient, what's the sort of explanation behind all this sort of counterintuitive statistical weirdness that we see. Alice, is that at least approximately correct in your estimation? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I should clarify. Like, I think that was perfect. Um, But I should clarify, I am not a quantum physics researcher. So I'm not even a physicist. So frankly, you you know, (laughs) like, you know, I'm I'm just the guy in this room recording a podcast at this point. So uh, so between us, do your own research, kids, but we're fairly sure of what we're saying. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you you do definitely have a good understanding. I've read your uh, your um, papers. Oh on, yeah, I sent uh, you my papers. Oh gosh, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you definitely like. I agree with your explanation. I think the thing is that um, basically uh, the laws of quantum mechanics um, don't seem to fit the uh, rules that we constructed before we learned about it. Um, in the sense that. Uh, classical mechanics, so stuff like, um, you know, just uh, normal gravity and the, the, the normal physics that we had for up, up until the 1900s, um, that physics describes how big things move through space, but we those rules don't apply to the quantum level. Um, basically, what we have to do when we're doing quantum um, calculations is make a prediction for what we think we're going to see. And that prediction is only ever going to be a, uh, a probability of finding a particle in a certain state. And a particle can be in a superposition outside of that. Um, so when we take a measurement, we go, where is this particle? And we find out, we change this wave function, as you're saying, like this description of the state of the particle. So we update that um, according to what's called the Copenhagen interpretation, which says when you have a probability beforehand, um, you take your measurement, you change that probability into a certainty. Um, but we can't 100% predict exactly what's going to happen. And we don't know why, essentially. Mm. So, it, yeah. for instance, the Schrodinger's cat is probably like it's so good for explaining this. So, in the the <laughs> classical Copenhagen interpretation, which is also referred to as the shut up and calculate interpretation, I think by Richard Feynman, um, this is the it's called the Copenhagen interpretation because when quantum physics was sort of first finalized and put together, it was in Copenhagen in 1927, and um, essentially they said, yeah, uh, you know, we've got all these probabilities. We do the experiment, something happens, and then reality, mm. y- yay! Uh, we're not going to think about it any further. Uh, so mm-hmm. in, in the case of Schrodinger's cat, um, the wave function would be, uh, so for people who don't know Schrodinger's cat, I think most people do, but on the off chance you don't, the idea is that um, you put a cat in a box and you put it with, I think normally it's um, a radioactive uh, particle that has a 50% chance of decaying in a certain time frame, say over five minutes. And um, if it decays, it sets off uh, a device which releases some uh, poison and, and kills the cat. And so the, the sort of thought experiment here is that, you know, after that amount of time, uh, there is a wave function which the particle has, there's a 50% chance that it's decayed and 50% chance that it hasn't decayed. And that's the superposition of states. And um, obviously the consequence of that is actually that there's a 50% chance that the cat is alive and 50% chance that the cat is dead. And so the Copenhagen interpretation would have us say that um, the cat is neither alive nor dead. It's in a superposition of state. Or you might say it's both alive or dead, depending on how you sort of read it. Uh, and it's only until we do the measurement or open the box, as it were, that one of those things happen. And... Um, Alice, do you like this interpretation? (laughs) (laughs) Do you like the description of reality? (laughs) I think 
Well, I should start by saying I think it's great that there is some jumping off point that is common <laughs> to, I guess, uh, the public. That's good. Yeah, um, I think it is a great thought experiment um, in the sense that it does a very good job at demonstrating the absurdity of stuff that actually we don't think is true. Mm. Um, it's really highlighting it. So basically Schrodinger was um, made up this thought experiment, Schrodinger's cat, to say if uh, the Copenhagen interpretation is valid on its own, um, how could we possibly have a cat that is both alive and dead at the same time? Um, and he was like, guys, this is, this is ridiculous. And he was trying to prove a point. Uh, so it does a very good job proving the point, but I think lots of people think of this as an explanation as to how quantum systems work and that a cat is actually alive and dead. And that's what quantum physics says. So like this sort of, um, mystery that's hard to wrap your head around. I think it really damages the reputation of quantum physics as being inaccessible. Um, but I think it is good that people are familiar with at least some, some component of it, I guess. <laughs> what do you think? Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Look, also, I don't like it. I don't think it makes sense. I think it leads to obvious logical paradoxes, if nothing else. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. There's a certain frustration that comes with, you know, all these brilliant minds, uh, you know, that invented quantum physics. Obviously they had this sort of shared confusion, uh, this shared almost disbelief at what reality seemed to be and, you know, how well the theory worked. And a lot of what's been remembered is simply that confusion. And then you have a lot of people on TikTok now, TikTok mystics, uh, quantum mystics, basically saying, "Oh yeah, we got the solution. Yeah, these guys can figure it out." But it's really just your consciousness. I don't see why they. I don't see why they never considered that. You know, it's just simple. Like you collapse the wave function. You know, it's, it's simple. Um, deeply frustrating. I so yeah, that's so. It, it is. It is so frustrating as well. It's. I think what's most frustrating, and this isn't just in quantum, this is in like science communication in general, um, or mis how misinformation is spread. I think in science, you can never really say stuff with a hundred percent certainty or like um, with the the weight um, of like well, you. Can't it's just a theory. It's just sorry, 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 sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> You can't, um, you can't communicate a fact, um, <clears throat> to the level of certainty that pseudoscience can. And by that, yes. I mean, um, a doctor might say, uh, we think this treatment is going to work well, but not, we can a hundred percent fix you. And if you hear people, um, you know, saying these red flag phrases like, um, this is absolutely a cure or you will find blah, 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 or consciousness does collapse the wave function. Like nothing in science is that certain. And if someone is trying to be so persuasive, then I think that should be a red flag in general. But yeah, you're right. Like, I think, um, it does have a few logical, uh, inconsistencies, which I think we'll get to later, but uh, sorry, Schrodinger's cat does. But at the end of the day, I think, it does kind of get the point across about the superposition, but oh yeah, Schrodinger's cat, yeah. great thought experiment. I, I I meant that also with the combined with the Copenhagen interpretation of just you know like um uh, just being like oh you know things the things don't exist until they do and it's just it, I don't know um, strange but yeah I completely agree with you on the um pseudoscience misinformation front. Uh, I think it's also just a, broadly a lack of nuance. I mean we saw this even you know, obviously with you know vaccines and everything where we say you know does this prevent you from getting COVID well no it reduces the severity of symptoms and then people say well what's the point it's like well 
nuance. There's statistics. <laughs> you know, there's this middle yeah. ground here. Uh, the greater good. <laughs> the greater good. Um, well, I suppose yeah. you know we can we can dive back into the quantum interpretations in a bit, but I suppose it's a really good jumping off point, uh, as you were saying that about probably the convictions that both you and I have about science, which is that because uh, I know you're you know a philosophy of science nerd like I am. Uh, and this is something that just isn't really taught to most practicing scientists unless they go out and seek it, which is this nature of um, how do we justify scientific knowledge and how do we justify scientific mm-hmm. statements? And the idea that we can never say anything with 100% certainty um, seems, uh, I think, to a lot of people who haven't you know, been exposed to these ideas, sort of anti what science is about. Surely science is meant to be, if anything, our bastion of certainty. If something is scientifically proven, scientifically proven. I mean, what, what more do you want? It's it's the science. So in which case, Alice, how do we start to justify scientific reasoning? How can we begin to say statements like, um, this is scientifically valid? What actually goes into that? Yeah, so I think well, you said that I was a uh, philosophy of science nerd, which I, I feel like I am, but I want to specify I'm, uh-huh. I haven't, uh, I've, I'm still a noob, if that makes sense. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the more not, I read, uh, the more I realise that I don't know. So, if anything, like it's, I'm, I'm still writing the first half of the Dunning Kruger curve in like every a- aspect of my life. So, yeah, I'm not here claiming to be an expert either. So, don't worry. <laughs> and that's a paradox in and of itself. But anyway, <laughs> so um, yes, yeah. <laughs> I know. Right? I'll go back. Um, so, in terms of uh, justifying um, the, I guess the the outcomes that we find with science or with the scientific method, um, I think it's important to make sure people understand that science um, is the process of gathering information, and um, a, it's like a method of inquiry. And a consequence to that is that science can change over time, or what is currently considered, you know, a fact, like that information will change over time. Um, so we can create models that try and explain how things work. And then we try and push those models until they break. And we ask questions, see if we can, um, I guess, yeah, answer those questions, or if we have to rethink the model. I think like the uh, model of the atom is a fantastic example of that. Um, we started with little solid blobs of stuff like the Lego bricks of the universe. And now we go, oh, actually, it's more like a probability density cloud. And there's a bunch of steps in the middle. And every time that happens, we go, wait, hang on. No, we were wrong. Actually, an atom looks like this. And I think lots of people, or I guess the public, people who don't have that much science capital, um, see you know, uh, reports like eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, an atom looks like this, now it looks like this. And people think if science is constantly changing its mind or correcting itself, how can we, how can we be confident in any of the results um, of any scientific experiment? The fact that science can call itself out when there are gaps in its knowledge and it can update and make revisions over time, people see that as being... Um, uh, inconsistent, but it's actually more about being more and more confident over time as we update our understanding. Because I think we can assume, but we can't know for sure. In general, we are making progress towards finding out some deeper truth. Um, it's not always true, but uh, yeah, I think that's that's it. People people think that science contradicts itself. That's the best part. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I share the same conviction that science is hopefully, you know, perhaps maybe exponentially getting closer to whatever the quote unquote objective truth is. Uh, mm. And, you know, the same, I, I, I had a few uh, comments on my TikToks like very early on when I was doing a lot of science videos, basically saying, you know, um, you know, Einstein was wrong. Uh, there's, there's this weird, have you seen this like cult of like Nikola Tesla fans around like, you know, his work and sort of thinking that he was like ahead of everything and he got shut down. There's an interesting like internet rabbit hole conspiracy around Nikola Tesla. It's worth, Oh, oh, hey. You, so you're a fan? <laughs> Alice is holding up a book, by the way, of Nikola Tesla, for those who are listening right now. So. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. I'm a fan, but I have heard the same thing as you. I've heard a few, like, oh, I got a few comments saying, like, Tesla actually wasn't that great, or, you know, like, diehard fans and stuff. Um, people would hate the idea of being told that their, like, favourite celebrity scientist is actually not that great, but... I'm willing to, uh, like, I'm open-minded about it, but is is that what you've heard as well? Tesla well, wasn't... Well, I've, I've heard I've heard mixed reviews on, on Tesla. I mean, you hear all sorts of things in the comments, but my point is largely <laughs> going to be, you know, I've often heard him referenced in the sense of saying that Einstein or, you know, ex-famous physicist was wrong, uh, and, you know, um, scientists are in denial. And, and, I, you know, the response is normally, we would kill to know that we were wrong. Like, do you know how how you know, uh, m m many physicists would, like, jump to get, write a paper to be like, oh, the fundamental theories of the universe are wrong in this obvious way. That would be, they would be over that so quickly. Do you have any idea the sort of the credit, the the, the, the prestige, the, the like, the, there's such an incentive structure set up for scientists to show that the greats were wrong in some way that it's very hard to believe there's some sort of conspiracy of like, oh, yeah, actually, this this other scientist was right, but we're just going to pretend it's not, um, like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the 10 weird <laughs> Yeah, it's like 10 weird facts scientists didn't want you to know yeah, that they're yeah. hiding something. Yeah, it's, it's so weird. Yeah, exactly. I think like, I think lots of people, um, or at least especially in quantum physics, there, there are ideas in scientific knowledge that are attached to a person. Mm. And like, oftentimes I think it's useful, but not always productive to ask ourselves, like, what would Einstein or Niels Bohr or Nikola Tesla or whatever, like, what would they have thought about this new hypothesis that we have? But I don't think that this is invalidating the contributions from scientists in the past, but when we find out that we were wrong, I say we, you know, um, when scientists find out that they're wrong, they get so excited. As you said, like, the standard model or the stuff that they're doing at the Large Hadron Collider, like, they get so excited when there's information that they're didn't expect because we're actually getting closer that way. So that's the, the most fulfilling part, I guess. Um, but yeah, science is a team sport as well. Like we got to um, build off the work from the people before. Um, and sometimes that means they're just laying the groundwork for us to modify or completely change. And that's okay. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, we this is the thing. We also don't look back at scientists historically like Newton or, and whose ideas have all been sort of, you know, you could say disproven, but updated or expanded upon is probably a more generous way of phrasing it. I mean, I think Newton was a terrible scientist. It's like, you know, they, they made progress forward and because of their ideas, um, we, you know, we are where we are today. I do think we're a little bit, um, you could probably make the argument that historically we're a bit more generous to ideas that are successful in their time. Uh, there are many scientists who have had a lot of false ideas, which may be, uh, which may have been close or, you know, you know, useful in terms of analysis. Um, so there's perhaps, you know, 
uh, a little bit of, of uh, unfairness there, you know, but, uh, an interesting discussion that I'm sure someone's had at some point. Um, but you know, you know, ultimately, yeah, you know, it's it's whatever brings us closer um, to a more successful theory. I suppose then this this sort of leads into the question that um, uh, what do you think makes for a good scientist? Then more generally, you said science as a team sport, so I think. And I'm only speaking as like a second year PhD student. I'm not speaking as someone who has years of experience. Again, I you're think- more qualified than I am. So with all these things, you know, I'm, I'm looking up. I'm just like, you know, I'm just here, you know, so please. I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, from my perspective, at least, um, I think what makes a good scientist is being able to or being knowledgeable enough um, to form a solid hypothesis that you have faith in um so like an idea that you're willing to put to the test but also be willing to scrap it if you don't get the expected results so like especially for doing a phd you form your hypothesis and you do a bunch of experiments and if you just keep getting completely unexpected results you have to be willing to just drop the idea or change it or just detach it from your ego um, and uh, move on to something else. But you still have to have that stamina and faith in whatever your hypothesis was to keep that or to keep going or persisting through more and more tests because, you know, it can be a bit, uh, (laughs) it can be a bit draining. Um, But yeah, so just being committed, but also willing to let go of a hypothesis, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard science is hard sometimes. That that matches with some of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strong ideas loosely. Yeah, you get paid nothing. Hey. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you hear about you know you working on a sort of you know what might become a radical new uh, cancer treatment, and then uh, it's just it's yeah. I mean, I'm sure we again share the same sentence about that. It's very disheartening. Um, And yeah, society doesn't yet value that, Uh, which is why we must we 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 require a socialist global revolution. Sorry, my politics are showing. Um, uh, Open uh, science. Mo- moving swiftly onwards um, from that point. Um, just like sort of cue some music in the background. Um, uh, so I-, I think I completely agree with you on, on all of that. Again, I-, I think a lot of it um, for me, what-, what I really admire in a scientist, and maybe th- this doesn't necessarily reflect their work, although I-, I suppose to an extent when you're writing papers and such, which is that um, science is fundamentally about argument. And argument, uh, you know, really is just a, a way of sort of conveying, um, you know, evidence verbally uh, and constructing, you know, explanations around why something, you know, would be valid or wouldn't be valid. Uh, and so it sometimes surprises me when scientists don't necessarily make good teachers, um, because I feel like you have to, if science really is a method of inquiry, you sort of have to convince yourself of certain things as opposed to just storing information uh, and memorizing it. So, um, you know, on that note, do you, how do you see the sort of role, and especially if you're interested in science communication, how do you see the role of sort of scientist and teacher overlap? What do you think necessarily makes for a good teacher, which some scientists don't have? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I love that question because I think um, the key to progressing science is communicating it well. Um, and I think when we, or a majority of everyone's uh, science capital is going to be learning about it in school or maybe learning about it at a university. But in school, like in your coursework, you're just being given the tools to do science later. You're only ever doing science as a process or applying scientific method, like in labs. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so I think a good teacher um, reminds 
their students or whoever that um, knowing something or having the tools uh, or acquiring the knowledge that is a product of science is fundamentally different to doing science. But at the same time, I also think um, the people who are super duper, like insanely, like gifted, smart, um, and just get things instantly aren't necessarily the best teachers or the best. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like people who are book smart aren't necessarily good teachers or researchers. So I think when you're learning science from a teacher in school, um, the, the most experience they have, and I don't expect that this should change, but the most experience they have with research is like at uni doing labs. And then they've had to part ways because they've had to learn how to be a teacher. Um, but they don't have as much, you know, experience in research, which is fine. Um, but also I think like being a good teacher means understanding or knowing what it feels like to not get a a concept. Um, I think people who are super gifted and just get things instantly sometimes or tend to struggle communicating that point because they can't see where like the, the, it might trip people up essentially. So I think um, like I definitely wasn't like a straight A student for um, my coursework, but I think like I got the concepts and it took me a while because I really spend a lot of time asking myself, what is it about this concept that I don't understand? And then I've taken that with me, or at least I like to think that I take that with me and apply that for when I'm explaining stuff. So, um, yeah, I think a good teacher needs to not be, um, uh, has to be familiar with not understanding stuff. Yeah, completely agree. Nice. Yeah. No, I, I, so I, you know, some, some of the nicest comments I got on TikToks are saying, oh, your explanations are really good. And I, normally I reply is, I need to think about it in this way. Otherwise, I don't get it. Like, you don't understand. I live my life in a state of constant confusion. <laughs> like, this is the only way uh, I can resolve this feeling within me. Uh, and, um, and apparently, um, not sure if you know this, Isaac Newton was apparently also a terrible teacher, just like an absolutely awful lecturer uh, uh, at, really? at the time as well. Yeah, like a lot of scientists, like that, that sort of checks out. Because, um, yeah, I mean, Newton was just, you know, obviously disproportionately brilliant for his, like, within the centuries he existed. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine him just rocking up being like, yeah, what, what do you mean you guys don't get this? Um, so, uh, <laughs> the greatest science teacher I ever had, um, a guy named Bob Dylan, believe it or not, um, no, no, no relation, um, uh, who actually has agreed to come on this podcast at some point, which is very exciting. But he, um, oh, wow. Just, yeah, the most incredibly sharp smart guy i've ever met and all my friends who were taught by him i mean he really influenced all of us and um, wow. you know we would sit in supervisions with him he, uh, this guy so what he would do is he um so our cambridge supervision system uh, you know one-on-one or you know one-on-three sort of uh, sit downs going through um uh quantum physics questions or whatever the undergrad topic was he would do that eight hours in a row and he would do that sort of like four to five days a week. He, he didn't do any research. He was just a teacher, which is like a, a novelty, <laughs> like no, unusual, right? And just the yeah. mental stamina this guy had, and he could just any problem you could put in front of you put in front of him, he could work it through. But he would also explain at every point. He would ask you questions. He was just incredible. Like it was just it was insane. But wow. what was a revelation That's to us? Insane. I remember one time we asked him. We said, you know, we just sort of assumed that he he blitzed undergrad, right? Because it's Bob. It's Bob. Obviously, he did. <laughs> and he went, no, I got I got a two one. And we were like, what? He went, yeah, no, you said I was a pretty average. I just, I've just spent a lot of time working on this and, uh, you know, I worked through it. And, um, that What's was also. What's a 2 just, 1, sorry? 
A two. Oh, Sorry. right. Um, so uh, <laughs> no, no, no. So at the Sorry. so the highest level of the degree you can get is distinction for undergrad, and then under that, yeah. so generally seventy and above is a first. So I suppose that would be mm-hmm. like a, an A grade, or I don't know, yeah, yeah. like, oh, and then underneath that, from sixty to seventy, is a two one. So that's the t- most uh, mm-hmm. average, the average uh, degree mark. Generally, when they normalize it, they want sixty five. So that's the, that's okay. the. Um, I think it's probably something like fiftieth um, to eightieth, fifty percent to eighty percent of the chunk percentile, something like that. Or maybe forty yeah. to eighty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. a two two is. Uh, 50 60 and then a third is 40 to 50 and then if you you fail if you get below 40 how do they how do they grade degrees in australia do they grade degrees? Uh, uh, <laughs> this is a whole big thing because it's actually quite inconsistent um, we have first class second class honors and so on so i think that right. kind of sounds like yeah yeah so second class degree is like yeah they just split up second class into the top half of second class and the second half of second class so okay Gotcha. Right. Thank you. Sorry, I just had no, no idea. No, 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 no. I'm glad we resolved that. I was, I was just like, what is a 2-1? That's a good question. Um, yeah. I was actually talking to my dad the other day because um, he didn't go to uni. And so we were talking about how uh, well, for the first open days I went to uni, they were talking about getting a first and getting a 2-1. We were looking at each other and like, what does that mean? <laughs> what are they talking about? A what? About? <laughs> what, what? You come first? That, that, that's going to be difficult. Um, so uh, um, coming back to the point around teaching and science, I think... This also ties into a larger point that, that we've sort of been darting around, uh, which is um, how, in my mind, philosophy and science are two sides of the same coin, uh, because science is fundamentally about argument, and philosophy is also sort of a method of inquiry and um, a way of sort of critically thinking about the world. And it disheartens me when science, really good science to me is good critical thinking, uh, except just, you know, applied to um, the uh, the universe. Um, so, um, and I know you, you sort of share these convictions, uh, as well. So, you know, um, mm. do you, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely do. I think, um, like the, I guess the, the way I kind of see it, you please tell me if I'm wrong, but, um, I, I imagine, or at least from what I'm aware Mm. science branched off from philosophy as like natural philosophy yep. um, a while ago. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. yeah, it is, it is descended from philosophy. And I think to pretend that like the arts uh, are not involved is, is naive. It's a pretty ignorant way to think about it. Um, but I think also like in my head, when science can't answer certain questions, I feel like that's where you sort of go into you you stray from science into philosophy, um, but I don't know if that's like actually a thing. But that's kind of how I see it. Would you agree? No, uh, completely. Yeah, I, I think you're forced to. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's disappointing because there are a lot of high profile scientists who have um, said that they're they're completely unrelated. I mean, Stephen Hawking famously said philosophy is dead because he said like all the important oh, stuff yeah. is being done by science. Richard Feynman, I love the guy. Uh, ironically, mm. said um, philosophy of science is as useful <laughs> to scientists as ornithology is to birds. Um, which is, yeah, he genuinely said that, which is really ironic because he would speak a lot about philosophy of science and what made for a good scientist. I'm like, but Feynman, you, you spent a lot of your time t- talking about this. Um, I actually remember hearing a talk, sorry, this is a side note, there's a talk from him. He was like, um, he was talking about um, basically like 
the ontology of a steak or whatever, saying like, is the steak red? Is the steak this size? Or is the steak tasty? And he is basically like, oh, all these philosophers, ah,、uh, they talk about nonsense. It's just whether or not I'm hungry. And I'm like, that is, you are dismissing so much of what like started science. Like, what, how would you, I guess, categorize information? And I'm just like, fine, but no, <laughs> stop. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. No one's perfect. No one's perfect. I actually, the way I, I got into my, like, my, when I applied for my master's, I,、um, that was what I talked about. I, I wrote,、um, I had the Feynman quote. I started off with Richard Feynman, the great scientist that he was, was wrong at, about at least one thing, and then gave this sort of ornithology quote. And,、uh, and then I got in. So, you know, pro tip for anyone applying to university just insult great scientists of history and,、uh, <laughs> and see if you can get away with it. <laughs> That's great. Have you ever swung by Oxford? Like, the old library is super interesting to me. You're shaking your head, so I'm assuming it's, not, it's a no. No, sorry, I haven't. No, no.、Um, so, if you ever get a chance, it's really interesting. There's like the old library,、um, there's a big courtyard in the middle, and because、um, Oxford's existed for you know, 750 years, something ridiculous.、Uh, mm. And、um, they have the、uh, stone carvings above each doorway that they've had for hundreds of years, and you see how the subjects、mm. used to be split up, and you have things like metaphysics. And,、uh, you know, obviously, like science didn't really exist. And so you have like natural philosophy uh, and uh, like, you know, and like、um, astronomy. And like those are the fundamental subjects back in the day. I just, I, that's, so for me, that's really cool to see how like knowledge is、yeah. split out. Yeah, it's moved over time. It's really cool. I was just going to say, I love the idea that、um, things didn't even have a category. And now we know so much about them that we've had to create entire fields for the information that we've filled, even though, like, a few hundred years ago, it literally wasn't even like its own category. I just, It's a good point. I just love that. Yeah, yeah. We need new <laughs> labels. Yeah, we've got so much knowledge. We need more jars. Yeah. We need more labels.、Um, what is scientism? And what are the, its dangers? Scientism. Scientism, yeah. What is, what is scientism, scientism and what, is, what are its dangers? I think scientism is like a, a personal worldview that I think people have where they, they treat science as some、uh, perfect, infallible list of like, facts that you cannot disagree with.、Um, I think, have you read Thinking Fast and Slow? Yes. Um, I have not. Who's it by again? I can't even. Daniel Kahneman.、Um, Daniel Kahneman. That's it.、Um, so I think. Do, do you remember this quote that he says basically, like citing a few studies about some, the behavior of people in some psychology、um, uh, papers that have been published? And he says, like, this is a fact. You have no choice but to accept. Um, the information that is given to you. Is this, do, do you remember? I think I have like the quote written down somewhere. Does that ring a bell?、Um, I don't remember necessarily that particular quote. I did read it a while ago, but、um, I'm invested in this anecdote. Ooh, I found and it. So... <laughs> I,、um, I found it actually. He says, Disbelief is not an option. These results are not made up, nor are they statistical flukes. You have no choice but to accept that the major conclusions of these studies are true. So,、mm. uh, Jack, do you think this sounds like a. Scientist or a cult leader <laughs> talking? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's,、uh, it's strong words. It's certainly not words I would ever utter about science. I can see how that would trigger some red alarms. So, yeah. Yeah, it's massive red flag language. I think on its own, this is something that is just bad and should not have been, been written. But it's especially bad because so many, I think like it, an easy majority of the papers that he published in this book. 
ended up being like redacted because they really were, I didn't know that. Yeah. Crikey. Yeah, there okay. was like a replication issue um, with a whole bunch, which is a whole big thing, the replication crisis, which we'll, no, probably, maybe we'll yeah. discuss later. Like, yeah, and basically he's saying like you have to accept these as facts, and then literally a year later, science is saying, oh, that's that's all wrong. Actually, we now have like a better understanding, or like we don't think that that's a very like reasonable conclusion. And I think coming back to scientism, it's coming from people who treat science as like this infallible like um, body of knowledge that doesn't change and is not possibly you know um incorrect it could never be incorrect essentially yeah like yeah, a religion right yeah yeah definitely um <laughs> yeah it I is th- it's like a worldview yeah i, th- I think the, uh, the the way to phrase that uh with the enough conviction and again this and this applies to everything from our understanding of gravity to vaccine talks is to say that given the evidence we have so far this is what seems to be the most logically coherent view to have. And that's not, that doesn't roll off the tongue, but it's like, you know, there is overwhelming evidence at this moment in time that this is true. Um, that may change, but right now, you know, th- as we see it, this this is what we call fact. I'm not anti-fact because I feel like facts are uh, uh, scientific fact because I feel like you have to start somewhere. But you would say, look, we're putting this peg on the wall. We might pull it out, but we're putting it here and all the evidence compels us right now to put it here. Um, so yeah. I didn't know that, yeah. that a lot of the studies um, in his book had been uh, redacted. That's that's really fascinating. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's it's I guess a good example of um, why this red flag behavior is red flag. You know, I think um, what's uh, this issue isn't necessarily um, the same magnitude across different sciences. Uh, I think in physics um, we might have either modified Newtonian dynamics or gravity, which is unlikely. Like, we may have that's, updated that's, that's my our... That's but anyway, I'll, I'll get into that. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about this later, because actually... I'm, like, I'm, really... I'm just putting my flag down now. I may be wrong, but anyway, whatever. So. Interesting. I nearly made that my honours um, thesis about really? modified Newtonian dynamics. Um, <sighs> I didn't, yeah, well... but it's interesting to hear. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating <laughs> when we're like, oh, man... All that, all those stars. Oh, gravity's just not strong enough. There must be missing stuff. It's like, guys, maybe, maybe, maybe the gravity, maybe gravity works different. No, all right, okay, cool. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I know it's not as simple, as well, that, but I just, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't help. It's like, so ninety-six percent of the universe must be invisible. It's like, um, yeah. uh, um, or, uh, sorry, go ahead. Maybe do a second take. Yeah, no, totally, because it's like that god of the ga- god of the gaps fallacy. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like- yeah. The God of the Gaps fallacy, which is like, oh, well, it's a mystery. Uh, maybe God did it. And you're just trying to explain away these sorts of things or like just making, uh, filling in the gaps when you don't it's know. It's the ad hoc hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's when you're just like, you know, yeah. you're bolting on some extra assumption to make your machinery work. It's like, oh, um, uh, so uh, there's tons of stuff there. Gravity's exactly as we said. Uh, it's just the particles don't interact with anything. <laughs> You just can't, it's like, oh yeah, I totally have a girlfriend. It's just, she goes to a different school. Like you wouldn't know her sort of thing. It's like basically the same thing. So yeah, I think that when people um, are dealing with science that is updated over time, usually in like the physical sciences, like with, if in, even if it is just gravity, even if we update the model, the the previous understanding isn't necessarily thrown out the window. It's mm. modified. 
but you're not going to suddenly find that if I let go of a book, it's not going to fall to the ground, you know? But I think um, it becomes harder to be confident about certain um, observations when you get further and further away from the physical sciences or the natural mm. sciences. Um, in like physics, of course, has issues of its own, but um, in physics, at least you can really like remove or control lots of variables. But when it comes to the behavior of people or the behavior of different animals or an ecosystem, there becomes, or you get to a point where there is so much information that you can't control or factors that, um, that may be influencing your results. And it's just layers of abstraction make that harder. So physics has different issues, but I think like it becomes more and more convoluted and harder to be confident in anything. You know? Completely agree. I, I want to just quickly add um, my takes on dark matter shouldn't be taken seriously. And I'm sure there'll be someone who goes, it's not as simple as that, Jack. So it's, it was mostly a joke, but there's an element of seriousness. Oh, sorry. Um, I wasn't no, no, calling no. you out. No, 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 no. I just want to put that on the record because someone be listening to this be like, yeah, dark matter is bullshit. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, guys, just, just to be aware. Like, this, <laughs> um, But on the broader note, I think you're right. So like, and this is the thing that I try and talk about, which is that in many ways, physics is a lot easier than psychology. Like, you can isolate things. Uh, humans are, as you say, horrifically complex, and we're working with so much pre-established, really powerful explanatory frameworks. Where even if we do add on an ad hoc hypothesis, which is dark matter or you know what have you, um, you have uh, an enormous data set of an extreme with extreme precision. Whereas what's happening, I feel like, with a lot of these fields, with you know psychology or, or economics, there have been lots of these attempts to have a sort of an equivalent explanatory overarching framework you know like newtonian mechanics about say human nature or um you know fiscal policy or what, what have you um from which you can bolt things onto but it's so hard mm. it's so exceptionally mm -hmm. difficult uh and yeah. so you, what you end up with is just like a lot of this evidence which is really hard to interpret without an overarching uh theory and i also think that's why a lot of you know again this is going way off field but you know the boom of like self-help industries and you know pop psychology books and these people who say, oh, you know, there are three types of people or, you know, there are four types of people in this world, MB MBTI or even like, you know, astrology, because it gives people a very flawed but an explanatory framework to like take out into the world. And as soon as you have that, it's easy to start like coloring in the gaps and going, oh, right. Um, so, yeah. That's actually really interesting. I have a question for you. Um, sure, yeah. So, obviously you would be very familiar with the definition of a law in science and how that's different to like a theory and everything. Um, yeah. but just to, to specify a, a law is, uh, usually an, a direct observation that, um, is quite, or it has like simpler factors than a theory, which is trying to explain the background or like why things work. Um, as I mean, that's kind of like a, a not a great explanation, but... Well, Alice, I've got some bad news for you. So right now, m a lot of philosophy papers have been published which uh, have basically said, oh, we can't really define what a law is terribly well. Like, at least in philosophy of science circles, it's a little bit more up in the air. Like, the best version of... Uh, uh, the best definition of a law I've ever heard is um, that it's a an extremely succinct way of stating a large amount of observed phenomena. So okay. Einstein's relativity is just really, if you think about it, the equations are just a really succinct uh, articulation of a lot of what's mm. observed, and that's great. And it doesn't, mm. and it, it, I mean, it seems 
uh, and we like to think of laws as like rules that cannot be broken. But obviously, we, we both know that's not true because if you talk about breaking a law, that mm. you know that happens in physics because your laws are wrong. So that mm-hmm. to me seems like the best definition. But I, I don't think we actually got to your question there. But yeah, what, what was your question around? No, that's okay. Community? I just wanted. <laughs> I just wanted to check that you agree before I move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, no, no, yeah. yeah, I'm not like, that's not a law, is No, no, please continue. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I was just going to ask, do you think, or maybe you could tell me, when we have a law in physics versus a law in, like, psychology, say, mm-hmm. is that the same, the, using the same word or the same definition of law? Because, like, a law in like um what is it uh, parkinson's law i think which is like your you will expand to fill the amount of time that you've allocated to a task or something like mm-hmm. how surely that's a different use of the word law to uh kepler's law of periods or something like that uh, c- completely yeah. oh, and then you have you have like uh, moore's law or what have you or uh, yeah. i mean I, th- I do think you have examples in science like the one that um, annoys me and i think i did a joke about this on my tier list of laws of physics is hook's <laughs> law which just like isn't a law <laughs> Most materials even Hooke's laws. Yeah, it's like it's like oh, this is a terrible name. This is Hooke's approximation for springs. Um, uh, so yeah, I do I do think it's um, so true. Uh, it's on like uh, it's one of those things where I think a lot of scientists because they have their heads down researching so much, we don't really stop and think about the language that I use so often. Um, hmm. You know, we talk about Newton's laws of gravity. Like in, in a sense, those are Newton's rules. Could we be like, okay, this is a law. It just doesn't apply in this universe. It's like okay, fine. Why are we calling it that? It just—it seems like a, a, an odd way to use it. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I'd agree. I do think the context in physics is generally, for any present day theory, it's like we think these are the rules. These are the ground rules of the chess game we're playing. This is the you know this mm. is the move we can't make. Um, whereas yeah, in psychology or economics, um, uh, it's 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 yeah. I think it takes more of that definition I mentioned to you earlier, where it's a succinct observation of most observed phenomena, like supply and demand, mm. right? Um, there are instances mm. where you can increase supply, uh, or you know, you can increase demand, mm. and the price necessarily won't go up. I'm sure that's happened somewhere in economics. It just doesn't happen most of the time. So yeah, I do think it's probably a bit more loose. But then we can get into sort of about language games and all that. Uh, and yeah, mm. we don't we don't take this. Uh, and you're right. On a broader note, when and circling back to this entire discussion, like science education, science as a method of inquiry. Um, I think because a lot of this has just happened organically, we don't stop and think about this language, and that's why we run into the broader problems of people saying. Yeah, I did a video on the, uh, the structure of the Earth, like the inner core and how we've used earthquakes to sort of map all that stuff out. And I've had so many comments saying, mm. oh, it's just a theory then. Oh, it's just a theory. It's like, that's all everything is, friend. Yep. You know, <laughs> cool, cool guy 69 on TikTok. Listen, buddy, you know, I'm trying to tell you, uh, but it's unfortunate. Yeah, and so, and, it leads to, yeah and, then, and then these people feel like, oh, it's a gotcha. That's a theory. I uh, found you out. It's like, checkmate, oh, atheist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Checkmate, atheist. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, there's a lot of things. So I, it's, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, how, as a science communicator, how do you fight against the misinformation that comes from, like, a single word or society yeah. misusing a single word? Because, like, that's context. And I think this even goes back to quantum. Um, not even thinking theory is, like, a hypothesis or getting those two mixed up. With quantum, like, we shouldn't really be saying wave-particle duality. We just don't have the words to express the nature yeah so it's like when people say is it a wave is it a particle like what are they picturing in their head i think what happened was we thought everything was particles we found this wave nature we took those two words and just carried them with us for 130 years 
and suddenly went, maybe we should have not relied on these words as heavily. But I think the issue there is then like, to what, ex- like, that's not how language works. You don't yeah. just spontaneously create a word exactly for what you need. Like the only unambiguous way to communicate, especially stuff in quantum mechanics, but science in general is maths, you know, like you, there's no, uh, like there's no English word for, to convey the ideas behind saying like Hilbert space or, um, her mission operator or self joint, like all of these maths. Yeah. Exactly. It's like that. Like that's the best way to explain it. And I th- honestly think that trying to communicate science without um, explaining the um, the the language that it uses, like you will end up missing information more readily, I guess, or you're more likely to miss information when you're not explaining it in the language of science. You know? Yeah, and yeah, and in some sense, it's 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 something that we definitely have to contend with because you know, with a lot of people, when they see maths, they tune out. I mean, I would occasionally, even in physics lectures, when they put up tons of equations on the board, just sort of think, oh, okay, I'll, I'll read this later. You know, like even, and I was into that stuff, right? Um, so I was I, the same. I, I, yeah, right. Cool, cool, good to know. Good, good to know. And I'll learn. I was like, oh, the moment of inertia tensor. Right, I'll remember that. Later. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also uh, the history of language. Uh, again, again, you know, certainly not a sociologist, but you know, for instance, the word electron um, comes from the Greek word. Uh, you know, it's the same Greek word, and that referred to amber because amber has static properties. Uh, and so, you know, lots of these words that we sort of like carry through, not even just like 130 years, but like you know, just thousands of years, have all these cultural roots. Uh, and I think you know, we're forced to sort of confront that a lot. Of the ways in which the humans understand the world is essentially through analogy, through story, through you know, it sort of seems weird that we call one of the most fundamental particles. Um, the same name as a material that someone sort of noticed put their hair on end thousands of years like that's that's that is that's that's the link um and it's scary and i think so i guess the solution which i'm vaguely trying to do and i think to an extent with this podcast and to an extent with the videos is i do think philosophy of science is in a sense an antidote to that because that is critical thinking that is science or if not science as a process it's a method of uh you know inquiry and um a rational uh consideration about the information that you're being given and in a weird way i think if you can start to recognize that hey yeah even the sort of english language and certainly i'm sure many others are you know vastly incapable of capturing fully the uh concepts we're describing to you uh, and the the riddle with holes, and you know, we even I use theory in day to day language of like, oh, I have a theory about mm-hmm. it. I don't use hypothesis, and I, maybe I should. Uh, maybe Why we should. Make, I don't think know. I don't think you should. Well, uh, well I don't know. Uh, maybe we should, you know, say like science. It, we should, you know, uh, leave really technical language to just technical things. But the whole point of the English language is, you know, creating analogies and and metaphors, and it's bringing in technical language to sort of, you know, if you say, oh, like uh, they delivered a speech with surgical precision. I mean, get out a scalpel but you know what i mean to an extent when i say that exactly uh, and so yeah. you know we're, you know we're, we're sort of dealing with the, the fundamental issues of like getting a thought in my mind to someone else's mind and i think maybe the best thing yeah we can do is to say all right perhaps you, the, the the translation you have of this when i say it to you that is not a one-to-one representation maybe you need to unpack that box a little bit on your end uh and obviously maths we would hope completely removes the unpacking nature and it's just like that's that's what it was built for but yeah uh i, I think you're completely right anyway sorry that was just a speed i don't even have a question off the back of that that's just <laughs> yeah you know, i mean i have stuff to add to that right. yeah please 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 <laughs> but, yeah um so i i just think that like it's i don't think it's an issue that people 
think of the word theory and like <clears throat> think of it as synonymous with hypothesis mm. in the sense that as long as people know in the right context what it means yeah. i think the only issue or the, the main issue is when people don't understand that theory could be used in a different way um but even like uh current you've got conventional and actual current um yeah. and yeah because like basically we have an electron which is negatively charged only because we thought like back in the day that actually it was positive charges moving in like electricity and then what well, we're stuck with it now you know like it would have been way easier if electrons and things actually I yeah so much. i hate conventional yeah current. I, I hate I, we should get rid of it it's just so pointless sorry <laughs> conventional current is just old white guys refusing to admit that they were wrong like it's not the flow of charge it's yeah, not yeah. <laughs> it's just so like useless no, i totally no, no. agree if you've ever done if you ever done circuit diagrams in oh, physics sorry. um you, you you might be thinking wait what uh, yeah the currents <laughs> that you taught in physics is conventional current um uh, and it's like like you'd have to like change the equations and change some diagrams not even in a major way like we're talking adding mm. some minus signs here and there um and it's just infuriating it's yeah it's basically like we thought that in a circuit um Positive charges move around. So we thought that convent or conventional current is positive to negative, but a real current is actually negative to positive. Um, so everything is opposite, but half the time it's not, and you don't really know sometimes. It's a whole big thing. But anyway, yeah, I think it's like mostly uh, oh, going going back to, to the words. As long as people know when to apply what words in what context, that's fine. But if your science literacy is you know, not that high, then you don't know when someone says a theory is actually explaining like quite a lot, but you think it's just a guess or an idea that people have. Um, I think, yeah, uh, it's, it's dangerous, but it's not the end of the world if people communicate science properly, you know? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That's a much more optimistic view. Me just being like, we need to change all of language. And you're like, no, Jack, Jack, we don't. (laughs) I mean, it would be good if we could. Right. (laughs) <laughs> well, you're right. We have maths for that, right? We don't need to do that. Um, yeah. So, that's true. Uh, swinging way back. So, now that now we've sort of like said all of that stuff, I want to actually bring back to what we promised that we talked about sort of towards the beginning, which is like the quantum interpretations. So, obviously, we talked mm-hmm. briefly about the Copenhagen stuff around how, at least, I think, at least in the video, you've done it on it as well. Like, you know, it's a terrible explanation, leads to sort of like problems and all that. Um, so, what are some of the other quantum interpretations? And if we can't justify them through experimental results, how do we go about justifying them? Okay, that's, yeah, um, I think I might, uh, let's start with the Copenhagen interpretation, because mm-hmm. I ranked it as, what did I rank it as? C tier on yeah. my S, A, B, C, D, F list. So mm-hmm. I put it right in the middle, bottom mm-hmm. middle. Um, and lots of people are saying, like, how could anything else be legit? Um, Copenhagen interpretation is, and I'll explain this in a sec, but like, it's the the calculation version, everything else is just um, speculation. And other people are being like, well, it doesn't explain much, so why is it not F tier? And basically, uh, to defend the Copenhagen interpretation, Mm -hmm. which says that you turn a probability into a certainty, so you update the maths as soon as you take a measurement and find out what the outcome is. Um, So basically, we take, we have a particle, we have a few options for what we could measure or outcomes. 
Um, and then once we measure one of those outcomes, we update the wave function. The wave function is the vector state that describes the um, properties of the particle. And the Copenhagen interpretation just says, oh yeah, just update the maths once you know. And like, there's a, there's no logical jump there from like probability for a bunch of options to certainty for a single outcome. But the Copenhagen interpretation is incomplete and that's why it's great as a tool. We're not adding extra stuff that we think or we speculate is going on behind the scenes. It's just objectively like a maths tool that we use essentially. Fair enough. Do you see it the same way? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's for me, if I'm being generous, it's it's like an ag- it's an agnostic. It's a, I'm not actually going to think about what's really happening. This is how I use the maths. And does reality actually work that way? Uh, don't know. Maybe it works. So I'm not going to worry too much about it. It's it, I think it's the opt out position. It's the abstain, mm. which is fine. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah. I think like I I think you, you there is no um or no working quantum physicist. Personally, I don't think they should be subscribing to speculative hypotheses. Um, I think like the Copenhagen interpretation allows people to just, as we said, shut up and calculate. Um, but it is it is a useful tool. People just hate it because it is incomplete. So all of the other um, interpretations of quantum mechanics are trying to explain what happens when we go from a probability prediction to one single outcome and we can never bridge that gap um we haven't figured out how to bridge that gap with like a solid explanation so that's where the interpretations are coming in they're trying to explain what's going on behind the scenes um so should i explain like the three main types of interpretations or yeah please yeah yeah no far away so i think like there are you know 10 to 20 ish accepted or um you know, concrete speculations as to what's happening when we see probabilistic results in quantum mechanics. Um, now we think that maybe some, something's missing because physics is, has like a cause and effect role that we see everywhere else, but not in this, this particular jump. So this is a gap in our knowledge that we're trying to fill with either one hidden variables. So it's just saying that the wave function, that state description, isn't the whole story and we're just missing information. Or um, the, I guess, the universe is indeed probabilistic um, and information or the Schrodinger equation, which describes the how the wave function changes over time. That Schrodinger equation might not be correct all the time. So some theories think that. And then some of them think that there is what's called a spontaneous collapse. So the collapse of the wave function is when a particle, like a a quantum particle, interacts with something else generally um, in a measurement. Not always, but we make these observations for a measurement where it interacts with something. And we think that is the collapse of the wave function, this jump from probability to certainty. Um, if the wave function spontaneously collapses, um, then that's that's a category of other theories. So there's three main like approaches for what's missing in this jump that we can't explain. Hmm. But yeah. 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 So what uh, do you have a favorite before I 
Going oh, um, oh uh, of those three categories, or like a specific, like you know, pilot wave, many worlds sort of thing, or um... yeah, or you can you can tell me later. But <laughs> oh well, well, I'll keep my cards to my chest. Honestly, I, <laughs> we went through loads of these in my master's program, and there was a moment where I just went, you know what? Um, I'm gonna wait till the next theory. <laughs> I'm gonna wait because it's yeah. Um, and, and for those, one point, <laughs> just wanted to throw in there as well, which is, in some sense, we know there's information missing because quantum mechanics isn't complete. Like it doesn't, it doesn't describe gravity. It describes right now the three of the four. Uh, we believe at this point in time, four fundamental forces of nature. Uh, and so we know it doesn't uh, involve uh, every bit of information. And so considering these questions, I think it's not only worthwhile just generally because it's about understanding science, but it's also there is a gap. Like there are, there are gaps. Like it's not done. It's not finished. So, please continue. Mm. <laughs> um, so I, I have a favorite. I'll, maybe I'll, I'll say it at the end or something. Yeah, have but you done like, a video on this um, yet? Because I don't want to do spoilers. Because I can, I can release this episode like after you finish your TikTok tier list. Like I don't want to. Do we have a preview here or what is it? You know? <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I maybe. You and I can decide what we think the next one should be. Does that sound okay. good? Oh, God. All right. Well, okay. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I mean, nothing's set in stone. We'll talk about it. Um, yeah. Okay. So basically, I've done a few TikTok videos so far explaining different perspectives that are trying to fill that gap um, for the probability. So the issue is that quantum mechanics is probabilistic or it appears probabilistic. So that means if I like roll a ball off a table and it lands on the ground, um, you can put a marker there and a ball will always land on the same spot. But in quantum mechanics, it'd be like rolling a ball off a table with the same initial conditions every time and it landing in a different spot every time. So like we wouldn't be able to predict with certainty where it'd land because there are a bunch of options and we can not change the input and still see different options. So, um, my first video about this in like my TikTok series was about the Copenhagen interpretation. I didn't really explain too much about why I think it's good. I just said it's incomplete. It's just telling you to do some maths um, and bridge the gap yourself as a scientist, but like there's no causal link here. Um, so we don't know certain information. So we have a, like a, a, a foundation to work off of as a scientist, not just speculating. Then everything else outside the Copenhagen interpretation is philosophy, I think. Would, would you agree it's all philosophy? Or <laughs> Oh, uh, I mean, again, for me, philosophy and science are pretty much the same. Yeah, uh, I, I would, yeah, I think it's right now we don't have any experiments to differentiate mm. them. So it's perhaps, if you want to say, it's a bit more philosophy than it is hard experimental science. I definitely agree with that, so... Yeah. Okay. I feel like I should check before I just go. No, 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 go ahead. No, I'm not I'm not here to be like actually, actually and like, actually. You know, like bring out like four books and like no no no. I, I'm genuinely curious as to what your opinion is. So. Um thank you. Um so the I think the most um infamous interpretation of quantum mechanics is called the von Neumann Wigner interpretation or the consciousness causes collapse um interpretation. So Basically, the issue is that quantum effects um, only really happen in specific circumstances. Those specific circumstances happen to usually be in a lab where you're measuring it with some apparatus. But because people are observing these quantum effects and it's at this like fringe level of, you know, 
the scale that people haven't really seen before. So we haven't seen quantum effects. So people were observing the measurements that they were taking in a lab. Um, and that devolved into uh, you only collapse the wave function if you're looking at it sort of thing. Like scientists have to be around to collapse the wave function um, in order to take the wave properties of quantum particles and turn them into particle properties. That's what's happening in that jump. Um, so the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation says, oh yeah, it's definitely people. People are the common factor here. It couldn't be anything else. Um, and I think like in the early days, it's somewhat, re it, it is reasonable to check if this is a factor. But nowadays we've updated our information or like we know a bit more about this collapse of the wave function and we don't think that we have anything to do with it. But yeah, do you, uh, do you, do you hate the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation as much as I do? <laughs> I, I hate how quantum mystics use it. Um, I don't think it's one of those things where like clearly both of those guys were brilliant. And um, mm -hmm. actually I have a, uh, I have a nuclear physicist friend who has read a lot of von Neumann's writings about this and actually goes mm -hmm. into quite a lot of detail about trying to explain how it could actually happen in sort of like brain mm -hmm. physiology. So um, I don't, there's this, I don't, I think the idea how quantum mystics use it, it's terribly solipsistic. Like, I don't like the idea. Let me, like, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, yeah, I don't think I have the same burning hatred because I think there is something existential <laughs> and strange about how, uh, but yeah I, yeah, I think it doesn't work because it falls in the category of like, oh, how do I know the world is still there when I fall asleep? And, you know, when I wake up, it doesn't all just like, I'm not the only thing that exists here. And I think it's 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 really just taking a sort of fundamental philosophical problem and slapping it onto a scientific one. Um, and uh, yeah, in, in a way that I think has been damaging in some ways, but I don't think that was their intent. I just think it's like a... a no. You know, here we are. I think so. it is reasonable to check. Like, it's a good question to check, but I think people just haven't realized that we have essentially ruled it out, or as as much as we are confident in saying, like, we've ruled it out. But well, it doesn't I, make I, sense. I it, it it does. It just you know because uh, for the reasons you say, you know, extremely succinctly in your video, and like you know, differing opinions, differing observations, and it, it forces you to conclude that like, well, who's the observer? Is it just me? Because if it's just me, you know, or is it just you? Like, it's a very it comes with a lot. If you take it seriously, it comes with a hell of a lot, which I don't mm -hmm. think anyone's willing to actually accept. So, mm. Yeah, no, I agree. Because, like, I, I personally believe that the universe existed before humans were there to observe it, and it will continue to exist afterwards. But yep. what's important is that you can't know that. You know, I guess it's like what, like last Thursdayism, like the whole universe could have just been like spontaneously created or like just recently, like there's no way to tell, but like, sure. Is that the most, uh, is that the best explanation? Probably not. So the, um, I guess the, the, uh, the question behind um, this one, we'll move on in a second, but uh, the question behind the von Neumann Wigner interpretation is at what point during a jump of interactions, does the wave function collapse? So if we take a measurement and a wavy thing turns into a particle looking thing, at what point does that happen? So uh, von Neumann uh, made up this chain where basically like imagine a single particle on its own, um, just be in a wave and then it interacts with a detector and that detector goes through circuitry and software to tell the person what the observation is. Um, so in each of these jumps, von Neumann said like where 
where could where is there room i guess for a wave function collapse to occur is it when the particle hits the detector is it when it gets all scrambled up into a signal in the computer um but i think he saw uh this consciousness or the mystery behind consciousness as um i guess wiggle room where you could maybe fit this collapse of the wave function but of course then if i am in a different room someone else sees the measurement and then they tell me about it i have to put that person in a quantum superposition of seeing one outcome like say it's a spin of a particle like if it's spin up or spin down i have to put the person in a superposition till i find out what the outcome is so yeah where is that logical break in the chain so not every uh interpretation tries to fill a gap in this, like sort of series of uh, interactions but that's that's how von neumann and wigner saw it so yeah yeah, I think it's valid, but not it's the only F-tier. way. F2. <laughs> Still F tier? Still because F-tier. it's not legit. Okay, right, okay. So I I feel conflicted right, as to whether to I should <laughs> I I'm listening. I will t- we'll talk about maybe pilot wave um and some hidden variable theories um mm-hmm. after this, but I think I Spoilers, I am an Everettian. <laughs> I think hey, that's the... Hey, uh... knew it. Hold <laughs> it. Hold it. I love it. And in some, some branch somewhere, I'm definitely a pilot wave person, but nah, uh, nah, in this nah, branch. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> so you're, you're Everettian as well? <laughs> uh, I, it's the one I dislike the least. Um, yeah, so Everettian, for people who don't know, Everett, whoever, it's the many worlds, it's the parallel universe explanation. It's basically saying that quantum mechanics is a statistical theory, essentially because in some level, and it, the more detailed version of this theory sort of like rules this out, but the way of thinking about it is that in one universe, the reason why it's 50-50 spin up, spin down when you're measuring a particle spin is because in one universe you see spin up and the other you see spin down, and that is literally what the maths is telling you. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I like it. I I like. So I I love the the theory. Um, the issue is so basically, if you're trying to take a measurement and the wave function, this um this probability predictor tool that we have, it says like these are the possible outcomes. Um, then once an interaction happens or the wave function collapses to one of the possible outcomes, all of those play out but they separate, like they are parallel universes almost, but not, not the same thing. But you can yeah, yeah. think of it sort of like parallel It's like a close thing. It's like branch. talking about branch weightings. Just, yeah, it's like it's not as, yeah. it's not as cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just say it, parallel universes. Yeah. So I love that. But of course, you can't, we don't think you can prove parallel universes exist. So I love it. I think everything falls out of the many worlds. Like everything that we've seen can fall out of the many worlds um, interpretation, like when it talks about like predictions. Um, so I think that's really satisfying, but it can't be proven. So my, my conflict here is if von Neumann was a good question, but solidly debunked, or as much mm-hmm. as we think is solidly debunked, not very sciencey, mm-hmm. is it a bad idea to put Everetti in an S tier? Because then like, it's not sciencey for a different reason, even mm. though it works better. Like it explains stuff better. But if it's S tier, then it should be falsifiable, and it's just not. 
it's not falsifiable. Yeah, well, that's that. That's the big issue with it. Um, you know, uh, mm. David, because I know you've been reading Fabric of Reality because we've spoken before. Um, mm. I would that David Deutsch wrote a paper in 2016 addressing this issue with um the falsifiability of the many worlds interpretation. I might whether you you might not have seen it, but I'll send you it. It's a really interesting paper on it. Um, because he, yeah, he, he takes it head on. It's really, really interesting. Uh, that that was the paper I nearly based my PhD. Well, sorry, my PhD proposal was based on that paper because that was the question I oh. wanted to talk about, which was how can you? Um, so the reason why, again, for people listening, the reason why it's unfalsifiable and why that's potentially an issue. This brings in a lot of ideas, but essentially, um, firstly, uh, one of the main philosophers of science who's very famous is this guy called Karl Popper, and he basically said the thing that separates um, scientific ideas from non-scientific ideas is that scientific ideas can be disproven. So, um, uh, so take an idea such as, let's take a statement like God exists. Um, some people feel like you can disprove that depending on how you define God, but it's very, it's obviously, it's a matter of generally ascribed to faith. There's not a lot of like hard, you can't do a lab test for whether God exists, most would agree. Um, whereas saying something like, oh, um, my theory of gravity predicts that this book will take a, precisely this amount of time to fall from my shelf to the floor, you can run that experiment, you can disprove that. Now, the reason why the many worlds interpretation runs into this issue is that essentially it's saying that if anything that can happen does happen, uh, anything that's probabilistically possible will happen. Right now, we believe there's a 50% chance when you measure a particle spin that it's half the time you'll get up, half the time you'll get down. This means that if you imagine like flipping a coin, right? There's someone who's flipped a coin in history. He's flipped a coin a hundred times and landed on heads every single time. Now, they would be under really good... They, they would be... Um, quite justifiably inclined to think that their coin was not a 50-50 chance because that is a horrendously unlikely outcome to happen. They must think that their coin's biased. They'd be, yeah, they'd be wrong to think otherwise. However, if they saw every other coin toss in history, every other time that someone had tossed a coin a hundred times, maybe even that same coin, they might go, oh, well, someone had to do it. Someone had to get a hundred heads in a row. It just happened to be Mm -hmm. me. Um, and the issue that many worlds runs into is that there is some universe where every time physicists have measured the spin of a particle, um, you, know, for, you know, the first part of the particle, they've gone up. Obviously, for some experiments, you wouldn't get that because um, you've, uh, you, you have to get net spin. But that, you know, they would have gotten the unlikely result every single time for everything. Uh, and those physicists would be coming up with a very different understanding of reality, justifiably, than we would. So even if, as of tomorrow, quantum physics, quote-unquote, stopped working and all the ratios were wrong, I mean, an Everettian could just be like, well, maybe we're in a weird world. Maybe we're in a weird world. So there's no way of disproving <laughs> it. And that's, I think, that's at least that's my understanding of why it's a... Uh, that's probably your... That's why you're having a bit of like a, ah, oh, but isn't this un- not disprovable in the way that the consciousness thing isn't? So... No, no, I love that because, like, I want this to be, like... I mean, as much as I want to be correct, I love Mm. the idea of parallel worlds and everything, but, like, if that's true, then we're kind of screwed and it kind of, like, is a little bit, um, it's disheartening. So we've got to pretend like it's it's not true in case it isn't, you know, like, if we can't prove it. But, um, yeah, I think, like, it does come up, or the many worlds interpretation does uh, bring up a few weird scenarios, like just weird uh, probabilities. Have you heard of the uh, quantum immortality paradox? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I've, I've, paradox, I've been but... trying to do a video on it for a long time, but again, I'm just worried that some quantum mystic person will see it, and I'm just like, just even, yeah. Right. But please, no, explain it, because <laughs> like, so... I'm sure a lot of people won't know it. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, this is to the best of my knowledge, um, yeah, yeah. but 
basically like if I were to play Russian roulette um, and say you put a bullet in the chamber um, every time you draw, so there's a one, what, one in six chance or whatever um, of bit macabre shooting yourself in your head. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. if you <laughs> if you don't uh, if if it was a blank, then you put another bullet in, and then you can keep doing that. And there is a branch somewhere. If this is a quantum bullet, there would be a branch somewhere where you just uh, you live every time, and you can just keep doing it. And then there's going to be one of you. And then that means, like, is that the true? version of you of all of the branches like is that the true version people get really uh iffy about it is that i assume that's why you're um a bit hesitant to talk about it as well kind of yeah yeah there's so many ways you can basically completely and a lot of people i've seen videos of there's someone i follow who clearly is a physics undergrad somewhere uh and Mm. she did a video where she said yeah the reason why i don't mess with anything to do with unaliving yourself again a bit macabre um but (laughs) is because i believe quantum immortality is real and that i will always survive but i just might be in intense pain and i was like that's kind of an interesting that's kind of an interesting argument against sort of (laughs) like you know like protecting yourself because you believe you will exist you will survive that your consciousness will go to whichever branch where it can maintain itself but you may just be (laughs) in a lot of pain um uh so yeah, it's just. I've never thought about it like the consciousness part. Like, uh, yeah, like, well, that's what a lot, a lot of the time it comes along with, which is like, like, you know, the whole thing of like every day that you're still alive or something bad doesn't happen to you. It sort of enhances that view of like, you are the main character, actually. You know, like, <laughs> you, you, know you are the center of the universe. Um, and actually, yep. you will be the one that survives till the end of time. Um, so <laughs> the chosen yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, I am the chosen one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Avatar was about me. Um, but uh, um, I just don't have the tattoos. Um, but uh, it's. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of people, that, at least that's the version of quantum immortality I've heard, where people take that and jump off to saying, oh, I must be immortal because consciousness is fundamentally tied up with all this stuff. So I know it's, that mm. doesn't strictly bring it in, but yeah, it just leads to, I don't know. I don't know why I'm so hesitant around it. It's just, uh, I think, yeah, I think because it crosses the line of consciousness and quantum stuff in a way that I'm not sure helps It's mm. uh, or, or enhances the understanding of either, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like it's a cool concept if you can explain it perfectly. Yeah, but it's, I guess without any risk versus any reward. mysticism, and it's just, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's you know, yeah. it's a perfect way of saying it. the risk versus reward. I'm not convinced there's much reward, and I'm convinced there's some risk. So, yeah, I think it's mostly just like a really clickbaity thing, like the quantum oh. immortality paradox or quantum Honestly, suicide paradox. Yeah, views. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like how long until I, I give up and I ended up like doing it for the views. But yeah. no, I think like Maybe two weeks for me. I... Two weeks. People listening to this episode like, Jack, you've just done seven videos on this. Hey just... what happened? I was just like, oh, I ran out of ideas, guys. I'm sorry. It's so... <laughs> it was inevitable. Yeah. yeah, but I think like the I think the the takeaway from that really is that people think that quantum mechanics is impossible to understand. Mm. So they're going to assume that like quantum mechanics is magic and you know what else is magic where consciousness comes from so let's just they must be the same magic or it's easy to conflate the two um and i think like with the the level of science literacy around it's you have to ask yourself this all the time like is this video or is this explanation going to be taken the wrong way um and you know what is the 
the foundation level of understanding that your demographic has. I think that's, yeah, it's a big thing. Um, so given that you are an Everettian, what other thoughts do you have about it? Or could you, what else do you have sort of like add on top of what we've said already? I, I love and hate Everettian. You know, I, the, the hate is a strong word, but it's, it's unfortunate that it may be impossible to prove. But despite that, what I love about um, the Many Worlds interpretation is that it's a very, in a way, like a very pure version of like the scientific method in the sense where we just come up with an idea, see what that would look like. And like if this model is correct or accurate, what predictions does it make? Um, and what would the world look like if, you know, Many Worlds interpretation were correct? And it turns out that pretty much everything that we've seen from quantum results um, can be described by the, by many worlds without too much or pretty much any modification. It's just, it's really nice and tidy in that sense. I just don't like that if it's true, then we won't know, but we can just keep trying to disprove other stuff like hidden variable, um, hidden variable theories. Yeah. And so what would an example of that be, um, a hidden variable interpretation? So hidden variable theories are basically um, interpretations of quantum mechanics that rely on extra information that we just can't see for some reason, at the moment at least. So um, if we have two entangled particles, so if um, an atom spits out a pair of particles um, they can be entangled, which means if one of them is spin up, the other one would have to be spin down. So that's just like um, one of the intrinsic properties like charge and spin, things like that. So um, two particles become um, entangled. And if you measure one of the particles, that influences um, what happens to the other particle. Einstein had a really hard time with this and he said it was spooky action at a distance because how can I separate two entangled particles that are not in contact with each other and I can put them at other ends of the universe and ends of the universe and they can still act as an entangled pair. Like something must be missing. So <clears throat> pilot wave theory or de Broglie bomb um, mechanics, it says that the thing that we're missing is stuff that's not described by the wave function. So the state of the particle is one thing, but there's extra information that we can't see. And that information is telling it how to interact with other particles. Um, and what they think in pilot wave theory is that there is no wave particle duality per se. Instead of having particles that act like waves when you're not looking, um, there is a wave and there is a particle. And the particle surfs that wave, um, and that wave is a separate thing. You don't need the particles for the wave to exist. So that's our hidden variable. So it's like a guiding wave function and this extra math. So if you can accept the extra maths, then pilot wave theory explains what's happening with um, quantum physics. But why haven't we seen the extra maths? You know, like, yeah. why is that invisible to us? <laughs> You're right. They, they should have really just uh, sold it as the the surfer theory interpretation because, like, the particles surfing the wave, that's just a lot better. Like, you know, you're competing with parallel universes here. Like, pilot wave just doesn't <laughs> doesn't roll off the tongue. Pilot wave's boring. I need to yeah, hype it up. Honestly, well, I also say because your surfboard's in the background, so you know. Like, oh yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. So, um, on so I guess to you know we've been talking about how 
a lot of the interpretations you're, you're getting outside the realm of um, where science can do an experiment to falsify or, you know, get rid of uh, competing theories and explanations. Um, mm. And for me, this is like an idea of, you know, whether something is just falsifiable uh, is something I think you can apply to a lot of beliefs you have in life and, and such and so on. You told me when we spoke um, before this call uh, that, you know, you from an Irish Catholic family. I know um, certainly my, my dad's side is Irish Catholic uh, from Australia as well. So um, I'm sort of familiar with <laughs> how the upbringing <laughs> can be. Uh, did, uh, you know, did your interest in science or philosophy or sort of like reasoning, has that affected how you sort of viewed I mean, because you went to a Catholic school, so you must know a lot about sort of religion. Has that affected how you've interpreted uh, interpreted that, or um, are you are you a theistic person in any way? Or may I ask that? <laughs> I suppose I should have checked. Of but, course, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Um, I love this question. Um, I don't really see myself. I, I'm not a religious person. Um, I am probably agnostic or atheist. I'm pretty much atheist. I was Catholic for a while, especially like in Catholic school. Um, but ever since, I don't know, maybe I was like 12 years old, I've been on and off Buddhist, which seems really, really weird. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You so, really seem um, like a life is suffering kind of person, I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> very familiar really with suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I am um, basically like a, a transcendental religions aren't for me. And I've been like a secular sort of Buddhist. So I sort of mm. follow Buddhism as a, um, a cognitive discipline. Mm. Um, and I love that you asked this question because I think, you know, quantum mechanics is showing us that there could be a whole other aspect to reality that we're unfamiliar with. Like if the waves are real, what are they propagating in? You know, mm. what is loop quantum gravity? Where do the loops come from? Like there are all these things that we can't see that we're oblivious to in like daily life. And so, like, your perception of reality is just such a tiny sliver of what's actually happening. And what I like about Buddhism is that it approaches that same aspect. It's definitely, like, philosophical as well. But um, it approaches this aspect of don't be tricked into thinking that the world that you see is the world that's around you, essentially. Mm. Um, So, I think, like, science is the systematic exploration of nature from the outside and i think meditation and um you know that sort of side of eastern philosophy um says that yeah that's a meditation is a systematic exploration of nature from the inside so i, I think that. i've got yep. yeah, it's not a yeah. quote from me it's from no, shin no. zen young oh, yeah. <laughs> but, oh. sorry i don't know if you know him but yeah, yeah no. <laughs> no i just i just like that um, religion is not a huge aspect of my life, but that side of like perception of reality and worldview kind of complements my role as a scientist and a science communicator. So that's so fascinating because yeah, I've also had a huge interest in meditation and Eastern philosophies uh, since I was about sort of 12, 13, 14. I got sort of like <laughs> through um, martial arts was a sort of um, my sort of gateway. Um, for me, it was a lot of sort of Taoist readings as well. And this idea of, um, yeah, I always felt like obviously we're contending with our subjective realities while also what I assume contending with an, an objective one. And so it was always, it always felt prudent to me that you need to have some sort of introspective practice or some introspective awareness because, you know, this is essentially the lens through which I'm seeing the world. I should learn how to polish it and where its blemishes are and where the cracks are. Um, mm. And it, it to, uh, uh, you know, 
more broadly speaking, you know, things like cognitive biases and all of that sort of stuff. But that's yeah, no, yeah, no, self awareness really is a big that. part of science. Huge, yeah, Sorry. huge. Yeah. No, well, well, yeah. I, 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 do you know you know about? Um, uh, I mean, again, uh, I was, every time I say something, I'm like, this could balloon into a whole like our discussion. So be really careful with like, hey, but um, you know, like Thomas Kuhn's idea of um, how science progresses. Uh, which mm-hmm. I think by the time this episode airs, I would have done a, a short bit on it. But for those who are listening to the mm-hmm. first time, he basically said that um, science isn't necessarily wholly rational. We Most of the sciences, you accept a paradigm, you progress under that paradigm until enough anomalies pop up where you realize that paradigm can no longer hold and you're forced to switch to a new version of reality. I think on that note, um, I this sort of goes back to interpretations of quantum mechanics, but when not, we've, we've, busted a hole open in physics and no one's been able to do anything about it. I mean, we have, but like, we haven't resolved this issue of what's the fundamental nature of reality. Like we got a glimpse of something's missing Mm. more than a hundred years ago. And that's, I guess, um, would would that be like a paradigm shift or a a crisis um, in like Thomas Kuhn's sort of language? It'd be like, we've got to change our perspective of science. Yeah, I think I think you, you could certainly. I'm, I'm sure there have been papers written on this, so but um, uh, but I'm sure you could argue that there the crisis between general relativity and quantum mechanics has been going on for a mm. century. In that um, mm. they clearly contradict each other. There's clearly a gap. Um, uh, you could definitely argue that quantum physics is also a research program because people still use it every day and it still provides answers mm. to questions. But you're absolutely mm. right. I mean, that there are, there are gaps, and I think I mean that's the holy grail of physics, which everyone's looking for. So. Mm, yeah, because like you can work in a crisis, you can still yeah, produce uh, like scientific results. But I think facts. like they busted a hole. Yeah, exactly. But like we busted a hole in science like over a hundred years ago, and it we're still in, I guess, like a bit of a crisis. Being like, no, we still don't know what's going on. Like it's been a hundred years, and we've got more information. We know how to use quantum systems. We're we're quite confident in our understanding of like what to predict or how to predict quantum um, experiments, things like that, how to use like quantum effects, but not that many people are asking how it's, I guess, or why it it works the way that it does. And Mm. because that's such a hard question to answer, but I think also like not that many people are working on it. So it might be a bit of a public perception that like we can't crack this at all because no one's got it but it could just be that not that many people are working on it and it's like it's hard to tell if this is like we've made no progress and we've tried really hard for a hundred years of like oh we gave up a hundred years ago you know Mm. it's hard to tell yeah yeah completely and i do think there's a good argument to say that in some sense physics has slowed down because the number of physicists we have is exponentially higher than it was a hundred years ago but we haven't seen um even close to linear progress um but Mm. the point i was uh initially going to make was that the Sorry. uh no 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 i love what you said no no, no. so the, what, what, what i was trying to get in with was um when i read thomas kuhn's theory of paradigms that to me reads like a psychological description of cognitive dissonance which is this inability to hold two ideas in your yeah. head at the same time like literally going through is like where you have mm. a paradigm you anomalies eventually accrue and you're like fuck okay yeah it's actually something different like that to me i'm like this is a, this is a psychological theory this is actually if you look at like lots of i mean obviously not talking mm. about replication crisis but this sounds like well documented psychological 
um, effects that people see mm. uh, and how like a lot of people are eventually forced to change their views on anything, which is that eventually you have this niggling thing of like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't true. And you sort of dismiss it, dismiss it. Uh, and eventually you're forced to like, it comes crashing down on you. And that can be, that can even be like a personal relationship of like, you know, you sort of tell yourself, oh, this is working, this is working. until eventually you're like, oh, it's just not. Um, and you, you dismiss anomalies. And so bringing this all back to like the introspective practice, for me, all of these things are so like I said, with like phys- uh, philosophy and science, but they're so deeply connected because, you know, ultimately all we're doing is thinking about stuff and, you know, <laughs> having meditation and like, uh, uh, and these Eastern traditions, which are so full of deep insight around how that process works, to me seems mm. just as a scientist or as just someone curious about world, why would you not want to know how the machinery works that you're getting the stuff from? Like that seems like, and to be able mm. to turn the lens back in on itself. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. So, yeah, I, I honestly like, I love I love when you find things about yourself that you didn't even know that you do. Even if it's mm. stuff like not realizing you just scratched your nose because it was very unconscious, like that's mm. self-awareness. But I think also like so th- there's this uh question in um you know Zen Buddhism and it, and it asks do the mountains or are the mountains dancing? Mm. So I think I would have answered a few fair few years ago um Back before I was very Buddhist, I would have said, no, the mountains don't move. Like, look at them. They're not moving. Um, but actually, on both a temporal scale and a spatial scale, mountains are very much moving. And it people knew that, like, 2,000 years ago because they're going to change over time. Um, like, the, the, the geography is going to change, but also, like, the atom. They didn't know this, but, you know, atoms are wiggling as well. Mm. And the idea that, like, a mountain looks like it's not moving is just because of your perspective of how the world works um but yeah i think like what's really interesting about oh sorry are you gonna say something all i was gonna say the, the way i always thought about that was you know when you're walking towards mountains obviously from your visual perspective you're going up and down slightly and so they sort of bounce a little bit in your visual perspective and yeah. so it was always one of those things which just like uh, like uh, in the same way as i think a lot of Taoist traditions what they do is they'll give you a seeming paradox and it's meant to and you know the stories people think about it for years and years and if anything the exercise is merely not that there is a singular answer, but to generate other answers and the very nature. It's like running around a track. Like you don't go anywhere, um, but you gain something out of doing that. And it's rather than being, you know, physical stamina, it's mental insight or mm. stamina or what have you. Mm. So. Yeah. Like I don't think you can, you can't necessarily know as much as we know by just meditating. But I do think mm. that there's like a, a lot to be said for sitting down and appreciating the limits of your perspective and then like once once you've got a grasp on that um you can see a lot more about the world and that i think comes back to the validity of science in general because even what like a thousand years ago but even before the buddha people knew that meditation was a healthy thing to do it was good for your brain but they didn't have fmri scans and peer like reviewed you know studies and stuff they just had empirical evidence and that's usually very dangerous because it comes with a whole bunch of other factors that you don't know about but i think like ages ago we knew that meditation was good for us turns out science today is catching up and saying yeah you know what it it does meditation does improve the gray matter or like the amount of um, um gray matter in your amygdala like it is actually good for you but we already knew that in a different way ages mm-hmm. ago so it's kind of like just because science takes a long time i think and that's why scientism gets a bit dangerous 
Definitely. And, and also, uh, I think another thing to consider, and, and you see this when we talk about sort of like health and health practices, what always gets me mm. is, because I'm super into sort of fitness, as you can see, I'm a bodybuilder. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> as you can see, I'm just like 200 kilos of pure muscle. Um, but uh, it, w- what always... Um, uh, fascinates me is you know you see a lot of uh, i mean the health space is something i could rant on about for so long and it's i think it's such a interesting case study of how science and like headlines around stuff being good for you bad for you um mm. gets morphed with all this diet stuff keto diets carnival diets vegan diets all this whole thing but you know even mm. who are people who are innocently um and well intentionally looking at research say a research around like improving um you know uh bicep mass or, or following some sort of like um uh bicep curl regime right and they'll be like, mm. oh, right, you know, uh, 86% of uh, these, uh, the cohort experienced a 22% increase in like mass and one rep max strength. Amazing. But if you look at the actual data points across the 140, you know, white male undergrads aged, you know, 18 to 23 that they uh, studied, which firstly, you may not fall in that demographic, you'll see that some of them actually lost bicep muscle mass. Like some people actually decreased in performance mm. following this. And mm. you like, you know, and how many categories, like if it's 86%, like 14% is kind of high. Like you may be that person. Mm. Um, even mm. if you are in the, you know, white male undergrad living in America demographic. Um, mm. And so, you know, an exercise in self-study and being able to, you know, even your data point is N of one and seeing how you react to certain foods, how you feel about, mm. uh, mm-hmm. uh, how you react to certain exercise regimes. Uh, I think, it's so important to have an ability to have that awareness and you can supplement that with Mm. scientific stuff. And like, you know, you can measure like how does my physical Mm. performance increase after this meal or uh, decrease after this regime or what have you. Um, But ultimately Mm. just that pure skill of being able to take data directly from your sense organs Mm. uh, is something I think we so vastly underestimate. And it, it seems, which is strange to me because Science should be predicated on that. I mean, empiricism is not the only mm. way, but you should take every tool you can. So anyway, mm. yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah, I think like it's you should treat yourself like a lab rat because there's no such thing as mm. the average person. You know, like you, the the combination of features so that makes an average person is impossible. Apparently, I can't remember why, but um, if you treat yourself like a lab rat, then you have a better understanding as to like the the actual effects that you care about. You know, is that the yeah. explanation for your username? Uh, that may or may not still be that by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> so. uh, I reckon I'll probably keep it. Uh, oh, so my, my 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 username Lab Ratbag, um, yeah. which I picked on a whim. Basically, I just wanted a username that wasn't a combination of like numbers and underscores and stuff. <laughs> so I was Are like, there oh. many Alice O'Keefe's on TikTok? I feel like, dude, it's really it's such it. Pains me to know that my Twitter handle will never match my Instagram handle because <laughs> there are so many Alice O'Keefe's. <laughs> it's so bad. But yeah, no, I, um, I'm a lab rat bag because I'm a lab rat to myself. And also I cut open lab rats. <laughs> oh, wait, it checks out. No, no, no. I mean, look, for me, I'm really glad my Twitter handle isn't the same as my Instagram or TikTok because Twitter scares me and I don't want anyone to find me on there. I don't tweet. I lurk. <laughs> I see the world burning down and I don't want anyone to see any of my retweets or likes. I'm just like there <laughs> silently. No one can find me. Um, oh, but yeah, no. I mean, like I couldn't get Jack Lawrence. So I was just like, I guess I'm Jack Laurie now. This is it. But, Jack you know, Laurie. <laughs> well, that's, that's the, the Aussie roots. Cause you know, you put, Oh, it gets like any other uh, nickname. And so my dad was used to be called Laurie. 
And so uh, I was like, all right, checked at Laura. Here we are. I like it. So I like so, it. Uh, yeah. yeah. But you're Aussie, so of course that makes sense to you. I'll be like, why? Lawrence doesn't shorten to Lauro. No one does that. <laughs> We're in Australia, like, yeah, it's, it's logical. Yeah, obviously. Um, so, oh, that's so good. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, Alice, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. This has just been absolutely fantastic. Um, I guess, you know, last thing to, we, we talked about your username at Lab Rat Bag. Um, <laughs> where can people find more of your work or more of what you've done? Obviously, I'll, I'll, I'll like implore people to go follow you on TikTok because your videos are astounding. I will reinforce that. I think they're so, so good and I want to see more of them. So selfishly, if you have more followers, you'll probably be motivated to make more and that's good for me. So, you know, that's ultimately oh, self-interested here. Um, but yeah, where can people find more of your stuff um, or, you know, what would you direct them to? So my Twitter is O'Keefe Alice. My Instagram is aliceo.keefe. Um, and you can go to my website, aliceo'keefe.science. And that's A-L-I-C-E-O-K-E-E-F-E, aliceo'keefe.science. It has links there as well. So, yeah. Oh, but thank you so much for having me. I had such a yeah, thank you. I had such a lovely conversation. It's been great. No, no, this thank was you. so good. So good. So lots of ideas. And um, I hope we get to chat again soon. So yeah, yeah, for cool. sure. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks again. <laughs> and that was the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are many ways you can, but the absolute best way is to share this episode with any friends you have who you think might enjoy it. Or indeed, give the podcast a rating on whatever app you are listening to me through. All the socials mentioned will be found in the episode description. If you'd like to follow me on any socials, I'm on Instagram and TikTok at jack.loro, and my website is jacklawrence.net. And if you'd like to support me more directly, I do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Jack Lawrence, but please feel no obligation. This podcast will likely be following a fortnightly schedule for the foreseeable future. As it turns out, podcast editing takes time, and I'm still juggling full-time work, some side hustles, making TikTok content, sleeping, and, you know, trying to be a functioning member of society and all that good stuff. However, I do have a lot of future episodes already recorded, so please do stay tuned. More fun stuff is certainly on the way. Thanks again for tuning in, and have a wonderful day.